Hello everyone, thank you very much for uh, coming along this evening to the first System Failure talk. My name is uh, Russell Martin, I'm the director of ArtQuest and I'm also an artist. We're very grateful to Block336 for having us in their uh, venue tonight for the talk. Block336 is an artist-run uh, studio space and exhibition venue which is not-for-profit, um, so th which is why I'm very keen for everyone to support the bar, because that will help them to put on more exhibitions. This is the first part of a six-part series of conversations that we're running uh, called System Failure, as I mentioned before. Uh, the first one on public funding. Future conversations are on money, in money and income for artists, regeneration, various other aspects of the art world. And the premise for the talks for the series starts from the idea that as a, as a human system, the art world is imperfect. But the art world relies on artists, but artists tend to get, or seem to get, quite a raw deal out of the art world in many different ways, particularly in the ways that we're going to be talking about tonight and in the future for the rest of the series. So we wanted to, rather than sit together and, uh, you know, kind of on our own round at the pub and put the world to rights, we thought we'd set the world to rights with everyone else and then uh, see if we can actually find ways to practically put the world to rights. So that, it's, it's, the series is about finding solutions, finding suggestions, and being positive about what we can change and, and trying to find areas that we can actually affect change as artists and as other people who work in the art world. All of the events will be in conversation events, chaired by me. We do, I'm very keen for all of you to get involved as well a bit later on in the, the conversation. What we'll do after I stop speaking, we'll hear for about five or ten minutes from each of the speakers uh, about kind of setting out their stall about what they think about the, the subject, and then we'll talk amongst ourselves for a little bit, and then we'll open it out to questions, comments, extra conversation from all of you. So if you do have uh, questions, if you've come with questions, or if you have questions or comments throughout, then please hold on to them and we'll definitely get around to you. At the end of the event, we'll have about another half an hour of drinking at the bar, milling around, having conversations. So uh, if you don't want to say something during the event, we can catch up later on as well and make sure that we capture everyone's comments. Yes, the first one around public funding, first conversation around public funding. And we wanted to start with public funding partly because it has such a huge impact on the art world. It's, it's, I would imagine most of the money for the arts comes from uh, public funding, from government, government sources, from Arts Council or from councils or from various other um, uh, pots of money. And also it gets a lot of bad press amongst artists, amongst the wider society and culture. It, public funding tends to be the bit of the art world that is the most visible and gets the most uh, beating, basically. So it seems like a good place to start. Um, a couple of pointers about it. Public funding is often synonymous with the Arts Council, uh, but I don't want this just to be a conversation about the Arts Council and how awful it may, be, may or not be and how we should change the Arts Council. I want it to be much broader. I don't want it to be about any individual organisation. We can all moan about the Arts Council in our own time. <laughs> um, but inevitably it will, I'm sure, touch on the Arts Council because they are such a big player. So basically what we want to explore is what is the place of public funding in the art world, what it does just now, what it should be doing, what we think it should be doing in the future, and what we can do to kind of practically change it. So 
now I'm going to hand over to John Kiefer, who's our first speaker. Um, John, do you want to okay, kick us off? Thank you. Thanks, Russell. Um, yeah, I'm going to tell a couple of stories. To start, well, tell quite a lot of stories, actually. But um, I thought it would be useful to look at the system itself. I mean, it's the, the series of talks is called System Failure. So I thought, actually, let's start and look at the system a bit. And given that I've been knocking around for quite a long time, really, I, I'm just taking a perspective on how it's not changed, actually, over a long period of time. I mean, I, I, I guess I've been involved in one form or other in the arts, either as a funder being funded or talking about it for probably about 30 years now. And what's interesting is that it hasn't really changed at all, actually. I mean, it's called, things are called different things. Now, funding's now called investment. You know, there's NPOs and all this kind of stuff. But basically, it's pretty much the same as it was 30 years ago. And a lot of other things haven't changed over that 30 years as well. I mean, the, there's some, some rather disturbing stuff coming out that the audience for the arts hasn't really shifted at all in that time. It's basically almost exactly the same as it was 30 years ago. So there's been hardly any change. So all of that investment, as it's called now, has maybe not created good news on the audience front. And I suppose more, although there's some kind of stuff to back this up, I guess more um, impressionistically, my feeling is the position of artist hasn't really gotten a hell of a lot better over that period either. I mean, there are more opportunities probably now, but in terms of people being able to make a living out of making art, I mean, there are, it, the curve still looks pretty much as it does it did 30 years ago, with a, you know, you all know it, I don't need to tell you this really, with a few people making quite a lot of money and then everybody else making very, very little. So it's, it's a kind of odd-looking odd curve. I think also the... The structure is quite an odd one. Robert, people know Robert Peston, who was the, he was the BBC economics scholar. He's just going off to ITV now. But he was, he was involved with the Warwick Commission. Um, he was speaking at a couple of Warwick Commission events. The Warwick Commission did a, did a whole um, research project about cultural value. It was basically trying to find another way of looking at culture which wasn't either intrinsic or uh, instrumental. But he said a couple of really interesting things, not in the main room, actually, outside. He said, it's a really weird system, the arts, because it's completely paternalistic. It's totally top-down. And it's, and, it's, and it's paternalistic in a way that most other parts of civil society have stopped being paternalistic, actually. I mean, it's very, very odd that people... Well, he was basically saying it's weird that people put up with it, is <laughs> what he was implying. I mean, why, why is it OK to have funding distributed in the way? And I think probably... It's most paternalistic towards artists, actually. Who or there, there's always an inter, there's nearly always an intermediary between artists getting funding and and some kind some kind of funding system. Um, so he was basically saying that in a, in a way, can't somebody redesign this? And I think part of the problem with the UK is that we've exported our funding system everywhere in the world. Actually, so everyone basically does it, so does it as we do it, except for the states, possibly. I was in Australia at the beginning of the year, and there the issue I could have been. Except for the access, I could have been sitting here, actually. I mean, the issues were almost identical to what they are here. And similarly, spending some time in South Africa. So the same kind of things have happened. And you start thinking, maybe this is structural, actually. Maybe this is not people not being nice. Maybe it's actually something structural in the way this whole system works. And, and maybe it's time to rethink it. Um, I was lucky enough to go to Greece a couple of times, um, just before Syriza were elected there. And what was very interesting there is that virtually overnight, the whole of public funding disappeared, basically. All, all the funding was cut. All the museums were locked up. Everything just finished. Um, it was quite extraordinary, actually. And people just didn't... I mean, in a sense, there was total shock. A lot of people appeared on the media to say, this is an outrage and this is terrible. The sad thing was the public didn't react at all, didn't care, actually, which is the kind of something we need to talk about, I think, in relation to funding later on. 
But what the artist's initial response was, we all need to get together, we need to take over buildings, we need to get artist studios, we need to do, get temporary exhibition spaces. And then when I went back the second time, they were saying, actually, no, we're not going to do that, actually. We're not going to do the usual thing and actually start behaving as artists are supposed to behave. We're actually going to start doing different stuff. We're going to share spaces with dentists or shoemakers. We're actually going to put ourselves in front of the public in a completely different kind of way. Because what we can't do is get to this position again all this disappears and the public don't care about it. So we need to start embedding ourselves in wider society in a different kind of way. And my guess is somewhere in there, there's a bit of a clue about how we could start thinking about funding operating in a different kind of way. By you know, buying artists having some form of social capital as well as having our cultural capital as well, the whole process. That's my kick-off bit. Great. Thank you, John. Julian Tawadros, our second speaker. Okay. Respond so, to add. Yeah. I, I'll just say a couple of things then come back maybe to what um, John was saying. Um, I mean, the subtitle of the talk was The Funding Problem or a Better Way to Distribute Public Funding. And uh, I like what Marcel Duchamp said, that there is no solution because there is no problem. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the question is, what is the problem? You know, because actually there is a lot of money in the art world. This is a multi-billion pound industry. So there is a lot of money. So I think we have to start off by thinking, what's, what is, what's the problem we're, we're addressing here? And I wonder whether we really can start from a presumption of failure, because you know, we're in one of the most successful countries and capital cities in terms of the number of artists, art students, public and private infrastructure, highest grossing auction house sales. You know, that is success with a capital S rather than failure for all intents and purposes, or at least that's how it's presented, and that's how, um, you know, it's pitched, uh, both when people are asking for money and when the government is saying no to giving any money, is, you know, this is an incredibly successful mixed economy and so on. So I just wondered whether actually what, what we're being asked to do is anticipate a system failure that hasn't quite happened, but we're afraid is going to happen sometime very soon. And um, I think that it's clear that over the last few years we've been seeing, we haven't <coughs> seen huge change yet, but we have seen some incremental shifts and transformations and disruptions, um, which until now have been relatively unchallenged, but I think now are really going to come and hit home. And um, I sit on the board of a number of arts organisations and on this one board, as is the case now, because, you know, the mantra is that it needs to be a mixed economy and a mixed skill set on boards. There was one person from JP Morgan and one person from Shell. And we were trying to future cast what's going to happen and how this arts organisation would respond to these things that hadn't yet happened. And um, they were basically saying, it's not if there's going to be another economic recession, it's when. And none of us just know that what the timing will be. So something is going to change, and I think we've seen it with... Um, you know, what's happening with the closure of manufacturing industries in the north. I think they're the canaries in the mine, literally. Mm. Uh, mining, Glencore and others. And th we're just, you know, something, something is coming our way. 
At the same time, with the austerity economy in the UK that we're led to believe is absolutely um, unavoidable, there is huge pressure on arts organisations to come up with a different business model um, or to generate more private money. I mean, something that has happened, which I think is very significant in the last five years, to take Tate as an example, is that the Tate has gone from having 60% of its core funding, of its funding coming from public sources, to I think now less than 40%. Somebody will know the exact figures. That is a very significant <coughs> shift. In that 20% shift is a shift from an organisation which is paid for by taxpayers' money for the benefit of taxpayers with a brief to, for those <coughs> stakeholders, whether or not you agree that it has performed that role or not, irrespective of that, to one which is um, funded by the private sector majority of its funding coming from the private sector, I think that's a very, very significant mm. shift. And I think what we really need to think about, and I don't think we've really had to think very hard about it or um, reflect on, is what is the real difference between private funding or self-generated income and public funding? What is the significant difference? Is there any difference? And if so, what is that difference? Or what should that difference be? Um, and what does that mean for artists, for arts organisation, where the money comes from? How does that change what you do? And I think here I would say artists or arts organisation. And how does it impact on what you do? Um, I think the other thing we need to think about is value, but in a different, slightly mm. different way to the way that we've thought about it in the past. I mean, I think... There's a huge obsession now, I think, with... I mean, we've, we've all started using a language which is about outputs and deliverables and key performance indicators. Maybe you don't, but I see it, I hear it a lot. I'm not quite sure what it means. Um, I mean, I run an organisation which has a turnover of £18 million a year. We don't use that language, but we do know what we're supposed to be doing for who and what that should look like or shouldn't look like. And we also know who are the most important stakeholders and we have to make a decision about who is the most important. We have lots of different stakeholders, but we have to, on a daily basis, make decisions about who is the most stake important stakeholder and who we prioritise over another. And I think that's the other thing, is that there's a sense in which we're in an environment where everybody is being asked to fulfil lots of agendas for lots of different people, and that's just impossible. You can't. So I, th I guess what I'm saying is something about, you know, can we be very specific about <coughs> what different kinds of funding do, what impact they have, how they should impact, what value they add, and how we determine what that value is. I think the last thing I just want to say is something about... Um, another buzzword, cost-benefit, but I think it is useful because just expending money um, doesn't necessarily mean you're making a difference, and that sounds really self-evident, but I'll give an example, and again, it's, it's something about how things are changing. I saw an advert for somebody to be head of giving at Tate, and the job was advertised at £60,000 a year, 
And then I figured out, well, if you add in, you know, all the cost of that role, so the national insurance, the training, all the other stuff on top of that, that you're probably talking about £75,000. And then that person's target, it said in the advert, was to raise £100,000 a year. I thought, that's a lot of money to spend to generate £25,000. And that's one person and an investment that's being made in an activity to generate more money. But is that really the best value, is that the best use of that, you know, £75,000? You know, how could that... And it'd be interesting, wouldn't it, to sort of almost rather than advertise that role, say, OK, we have £75,000. We want to know what you think, how we could generate value by spending this £75,000, what should we do with it? How should we use it? So just really responding to John's point about, you know, thinking differently, but also being more rigorous, really, in terms of how we interrogate mm. what we do now. And, and because if we don't interrogate the now and, and our, what we take as, you know, business <coughs> as usual, then we're not going to be in a very good position to come up with alternative ways of thinking. Definitely. I mean, I think, I think what, what talks about the last 30 years, I mean, what we have seen in the last 30 years is enormous growth in the size of arts organisations, actually. I mean, they're all massively bigger than they were 30 years ago, and they all have a lot of new jobs being created within the structure. I mean, arts management continues to be... I mean, people have been churned out of universities every year to fill I mean god knows what they're going to do and, and the, the whole you know the whole the other people who aren't artists in the in, in the in the mix have actually done quite well out of this really in the last 30 years and it's no longer the case that um, they're going to be hit but one of the interesting things when I talked about the structure and how decisions are made is if you're on a board like like um, Jelaine was saying in a sense your first one of the first your first duties as a board member is to make sure you have enough money to pay the staff for three months not to pay the artists for three months, but to pay the staff for three months. And I think, you know, there are things which are built in, which seem quite innocuous at first, but when you start thinking about how boards start thinking about their organisation as they're concerned with protecting their staff team, and if it means cancelling exhibitions and so forth, and therefore taking money away from artists, that's not fed into it. So I think it's that thing about artists getting agency and getting... And, I, and you know, that... That's not going to be easy because, in a way, the, the situation as it's structured at the moment doesn't give an enormous amount of agency. There's some good things happening, I think, in terms of bringing people together, but it's important to appeal to the public, actually. I mean, the, the, I had a, I've had a very strange kind of dog's breakfast of a career, but I spent about three months as a special advisor to a minister. And the one thing I learned during that time is they don't take any notice of evidence. That's not how they make decisions. And, and other people I've spoken to say the same things. So the idea is if you provide more and more stats saying how important this bit of the arts are for the economy, all that kind of stuff, and plough it up to... This is the Arts Council's rationale for being here, really, in some ways now. And plough it up to the minister, they're somehow going to have their minds changed and think how it's one of it doesn't work like that. Well, an artist I know who sat on the council, and there's still an arts council, I know you said we shouldn't mention it, but I no, think no, it's no. a story about We can about mention decision. it, we will inevitably mention it. But the it. point about decision-making is a really important one, and, you know, key people who have power to make decisions and impact. And they said that whenever the Royal Opera House mm -hmm. came up for discussion at a council meeting, um, I think it was Margaret Thatcher's private secretary, he used to put something in her red box, 
And then the phones would go off and, you know, they'd be suddenly like, no, 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 this, cut, this is a cut to the Royal Opera House was on the agenda. Yeah. So, I mean, and then loads of people would phone up and be absolutely, you know, outraged. Not that I think the Royal Opera House should be cut at all. I think the Royal Opera House is brilliant. But the point is that there are vested interests and mm. it's naive of us to think that, that it's it is, not a... I think also what politicians do listen to is the public. I mean, so, I mean, that's where, in a way, trying to lobby... Arts Council, who then lobby the politicians, is really, it, it's what, what I think it's a waste of time. I mean, others would disagree with me. Whereas, in fact, trying to think of a different way of getting the message across to the public. And I think we're in a very low position at the moment there. I've got a, a, a friend of mine who's the head of research at a market research company, and I love looking at all this market research guff, actually. It's quite interesting. But there's a thing, anybody, somebody here probably knows what it's called. It's a map of kind of needs and desires which people use in terms of looking at product launches and so forth. And it has kind of blobs all over it, basically. It's different sized blobs talking about different things. And I always look at it because there's, there's kind of two or three things that look at culture and look at the arts. And um, this time I was looking at it, it was just this one had just been published just before the election. I couldn't see them on there. And I said, that's a shame. They've taken, um, they've taken culture of the arts off the map. And they said, no, they've disappeared, was the response. They no longer register at all in terms of the public. And that is quite worrying, I think, if we're looking at what happened in Greece and so forth. So I think part of, the, part of the argument for public funding is really we've got to find a different way of addressing the public as, and, and not to just wait for the Arts Council to be our advocate to there, I think. I think um, it, it's, it's, there's been an incredibly rich amount of stuff that we've touched on very briefly <laughs> in what you both said, and I want to start to drill down into one or a couple of those bits in the, in the time that we have. Um, I think the conversation about values is interesting about, and, and value, uh, particularly in terms of the, what you were saying about Greece and how all mm. the public funding disappeared and no one really cared. Mm. How, I, obviously, there's a difference between the public funding disappearing and all of the arts disappearing. Mm. And I wonder also, I was reading um, uh, an article the other day about, uh, which reminded me about the NHS and that people who've never had anything to do with the NHS think it's terrible, and people who have had a lot to do with the NHS think it's amazing. Yeah. And it's kind of the same with the yeah. arts, not maybe the Arts Council, although I have no idea, but certainly with the arts, that people think, oh, well, the arts, I can live without the arts, I don't really go to the theatre, but they <coughs> do go to the cinema, or they do go, you know, yeah. walk past, whatever it might be, that it's, it's so intrinsic with everyone's entire life that yeah. if it all disappeared, they would absolutely notice it. And I wonder if that's the way that we can help the public to understand what the value of it is and therefore to think about well, how, how is it supported and who makes these decisions and, and what, is the, what are they thinking? I think partly, yes. I mean, I mean, the entertainment blob was still on this map and that was still there. But that, interesting that, that has shrunk as well, actually. And I think that's probably got to do with people's disposable income as much as anything else, actually. But, I, yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's always dangerous to think about its people's false perceptions of things, and actually I think you have to start with where they actually, you know, you can say, but you do like the arts, but you go to the cinema and you've seen Steve McQueen or something like that, and whatever. And I think it's always a bit dangerous to say that, because I think you can't, you don't know how, what role culture has in somebody's life, and I think that's, we, we've, I think we've made a lot of mistakes in the arts by making those kind of connections and assuming people are all automatically going to get it. I think it's got more to do with what role the artists can, can play in the world, actually, rather than rather than saying we're great for the economy, as you were saying really earlier on, or we're great for mm. 
social cohesion or everything else. It's actually, you know, we, we've got to start looking at a different, yeah. a different yeah. narrative in here somewhere. The other, the other one's not working, I don't think. Yeah, yeah. but I, the, sound, uh, the risk of sounding like a terrible elitist, I do think there is a problem about, make, you know, I do, what you're saying sounds still a bit about, oh, we have to, you know, <coughs> it very quickly becomes uh, a conversation about, you know, art, art has to justify itself and artists have to justify uh, why they do what they do and the only way to do that is through some kind of social inclusion access and so on. Or economically through the or creative economically, industries. Yeah. I wasn't just that at all actually. <laughs> okay. No, no, I wasn't saying that at all. I mean, I completely disagree with that. I don't think that's what it is. I think there's a third. There's a third way, actually, which is neither looking at one, neither saying we're just artists, give us money, and we deserve it. Give us your public money, and the, at the other end of the spectrum, saying we're only useful because we're good for the economy. I mean, I completely. I think both of those are wrong. The third one's much more subtle, and it's more difficult to define, and it's something in between the two, actually. And it's for artists and arts organisations to be able to use that space and actually talk about things in a different kind of way. And I don't, think we've got, I mean, I don't think we've got the language yet to do it. Um, I mean, my colleague John Holden's written a lot about this, just saying, actually, we, t- we need to start talking about cultural value. We just need to stop talking about arts for art's sake or arts for everything else's sake as well and just find a different way of thinking about this. And um, I think the danger is, because we, we, you know, we talk about public, you know, the, the public word in public funding is quite important. Actually, and I think we've got to articulate that relationship between artists, arts organisations, and the public. And if we can't find a, a good story for that or a good, a good description for that, I think we're going to have problems but in, in the future. In a way, I think that's not just up to artists and arts organisations. No. I think that's part of the, the issue. And I mean, I think you're, Robert Peston's right about there being a huge amount of paternalism in the art world. But on the other hand, you know, the Ruthian project, the paternalistic project. Extraordinaire did bring amazing cultural productions to huge audience through television. Brilliant writing, brilliant acting, you know, it was innovative and pioneering because there was a sort of, I mean, it's always dangerous to look back at the past with kind of, um, you know, through rose-tinted spectacles, but there seemed to be much more of a, of a social contract around the value of culture and of making it accessible. So it wasn't just about an arts institution or an artist. It was about television and media and books and a whole kind of you know, project almost. And I think that when it, part of the problem is that it becomes we become atomized. And part of the competitive environment of, you know, putting in bids for funding. Just the whole point of putting in a bid sets up a competitive environment in which people are being set against each other rather than an environment in which we say, actually, we need lots of different things in this mix because it is a very, you know, it's a very delicate kind of ecosystem in which you need lots of different things. You need the obscure thing over there that five people are going to go to as much as you need, you know, the box office hit. And, if you, and, you, and we need to understand how these things are interdependent because, and I think that is an argument that's important to make because, you know, the, um, the King's Speech started off in a, in a little theatre above a pub in Islington 
Um, the, the director's mum happened to see it and said, go along and have a look at this. This is really interesting, son. Mm -hmm. Son goes along, you know, and then it becomes... For sure. And then yeah. suddenly it's, oh, my God, isn't this brilliant? And aren't the creative industries in Britain fantastic? But without the small theatre you know, over the pub in Islington, there wouldn't be this, you know, and not that it has to end in that success, because sometimes it just doesn't, it doesn't go anywhere, yeah. not in the first week or year or decade. But that's, that's where public funding has become so valuable, because it allows that risk, it allows the possibility <coughs> of failure. But it is, I think, going back to what you were talking about, this kind of language of business that's in the arts, there's also a language of politics that's in the arts <coughs> as well, this idea of bidding and having consultations yeah. and bit, uh, this paternalistic culture, that is a, a civil service poli political culture as well. Mm. Um, and I'm just wondering if, given that it's public funding, given that it's coming from the government, it, are there any ways to circumvent that, really? Is that just kind of what we're stuck with? What's if interesting, it's, if it's what's interesting nobody's actually, as far as I can tell, ever gone to the Arts Council or the government and proposed a completely different funding system to them. Absolutely. I mean, everybody's accepted it as it is, in a sense. I mean, it, it's the job, it's always been seen as being the job of the Arts Council, the government, to rethink what they're doing and tweak it here and there and put this new funding and so forth. Nobody's ever gone to them. And from, from the sector, I mean, people you know, might have had consultants doing it or whatever, but nobody's actually gone the same. And I think the point you're making about the competitive, I mean, the whole funding process is bonkers, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it's the most amazing waste of time and energy imaginable, actually. I mean, you have people in arts organisations consumed for two and a half months a year, writing their bids, and you have somebody equivalent to the Arts Council spending two months a year reading them, and everyone knows what the results are going to be anyway before they and go And if in. we yeah. Yeah. costed up how much that all costs. Huge, massive. But I think your but point I, about intermediaries is really important, I think. Just, f just on. on that one point, I mean, I think the notion of... It was one of the things I picked up in Australia was that there's a, there's a basic group of Aboriginal artists scattered across the whole of Australia. And they decided they're not going to bid against each other. They're going to put a bid in together across <laughs> the whole thing. They're refusing to bid for the pot of money. They're saying, the pot of money is this, and we're going to say this is what we're doing, and this is what we're going to put it in. Now, that's kind of quite radical. And there's the Arts Council, the equivalent of the Arts Council, they're saying, no, you can't do that. They're saying, well, we are going to do it. So either you're not going to give us any money at all, or you're going to accept that we put a consortium bid. And we, worked, we sat down together, we worked out what we all need to do what we're doing, had a few arguments to do it, but actually this is, we think this will work. This means we can all do our stuff between them. I think it comes back to this intermediary question, and that's where, you know, you know, how could any of us get away with saying, actually, let's get rid of, let's have an experiment, let's try a non-intermediated art world for a bit over here. Okay, there's no Arts Council, there's no Tate, there's no brokers, there's no education, there's no one to intermediate. And taking your example, you know, say, okay, we'll divide up the pot, there's an allocation of money, there has, someone has, to, there has to be some allocation, I guess, at the beginning. And then it's divided up by population. And the creative, you know, community and the people in that place negotiate Brilliant. what they're going to do with that money. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think if you start to break it down, you can see that happening. You could say, okay, support for individual artists. That comes through a whole... Some of that comes directly, not very much, but some of it comes directly. Some of it comes through other agencies. Some of that, in a sense, comes through galleries and arts organisations. Why not actually sit down together with artists and actually work out how that could be more effectively spent? Maybe not getting right down to saying, this artist should get money, this one shouldn't, but actually saying, is there a better way of doing this? 
Because artists net, you know, have all kinds of networks. So they a lot of barter systems going on between people making work and so forth. You know, there are structures, there are hidden structures within how artists work already. And just use some of those, actually. Um, yeah. Let's, let's get rid of the intermediaries. Yes. <laughs> Playing devil's advocate for a second. But <coughs> another important function of public funding is that it validates the activity that's being funded. Yeah. So this artist is doing a good project. I am, you know, not an artist. I don't know much about the art world. But this has got this logo on it. Says Arts Council or says the council are funding this or whatever. So someone somewhere has decided this is a good use of public money. Public money is my tax money. So whoever's spending it is being very careful about how they're spending it. So I'm going to kind of trust that this is a good thing. I might never go and see it or I might hate it. But I'll at least have some idea that... Someone somewhere along the line is validating this as a yeah. good thing. That's still, that's still so not how that. do you do that if, if you're kind of but working it out communally? Well, I, well, I think actually what you, it still wouldn't change, actually. I mean, I mean, I'm not suggesting actually getting rid of the Arts Council completely. No. But what you would have is a different kind of way of planning how you're going to spend the money. And in a sense, one that's more... Also one that has more intelligence to it as well. Because I mean, so, so often in decisions that they're not... First of all, they're not aware about things that are going on in the sector quite often, but also they're not aware of what's going on with audiences. They don't understand a whole range of stuff. So it just it just ups the ups the level of intelligence in the whole process massively. I think it's kind of I mean without using I mean, another buzzword, it's kind of kind of crowdsourcing it really. I mean, I think the problem with I think you're absolutely right about validation, and there is a role for validation. I think the the problem <coughs> of validation is when there's too much agreement between those people who do the validating. And that's anathema to any kind of difference or any diversity or any kind of um, risk-taking. And I think that's the problem, is, you know, and we haven't used the word risk, but I think we should go back to the question of failure and risk and talk about what, you know, I'm interested, I think public funding has a really important role. I think it would be a disaster if public funding wasn't part of the mm -hmm. ecosystem. But that public funding has to be ring-fenced to do specific things, and that's got to be about taking risks. It can't possibly be about reaffirming the same thing, the things that have been validated already in 10 different other places, because that's too easy. And that can be funded elsewhere, because sponsors... I mean, you know, when I uh, ran an organisation called Innova, we were constantly uh, told that we'd failed because we hadn't managed to get any sponsorship or private funding. And why couldn't we be more like the Serpentine Gallery? And my point was, well, we're not here to be the Serpentine Gallery precisely because what we're doing is something very different and it should be about working with artists who haven't been established, who aren't known, who curators who aren't known, writers who aren't known. Yeah. And, and it has to really be about difference in the widest possible sense, not just racially or culturally. So you, but as soon as you set measures and markers of success, which all look the, are all the same, mm. then what you get is the same. The same. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, so I don't think validation is a bad thing. Mm -hmm. It's just how... The it's parameters getting, of validation. Getting, kind of, yeah, getting enough diversity amongst those gatekeepers or deciders or whoever they might be to make sure that it's 
Well, mm. uh, well, and th maybe this goes back to what you were saying right at the top of, the, of tonight about audiences and how the audience hasn't really shifted in the last 30 or so years. Maybe that's a reflection of the and I don't, I don't mean just numerically, I mean everybody's class. Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe that's a reflection of, and I don't know, and I don't know if you'd know, but maybe it's a reflection of the fact that the top of the arts world probably hasn't changed very much either. The no. people making those decisions about what to fund hasn't really changed yeah. either. Yeah. No, absolutely. So they're kind of making those decisions for the same demographic. I mean, the, th the other thing that has changed is the always the massive elephant in the room, which is the art market. And, and there's a wonderful book called The New Economy of Art. It is. I've read it. When I was doing research on my bit, I was just stunned by how big it is, actually. I mean, I kind of knew this. But, I mean, it's now... It would, if it was a country, the art market would be about the 42nd largest country in the world. The art market in the UK is bigger than the combined spend of all of the various cultural bodies in the UK put together. And there is a direct benefit that the art market gets from public funding. And that is something which is, you know, nobody follows the money, nobody knows where the money goes, but we all know that, you know, artists benefit from it, galleries benefit from it, dealers benefit from it as well. And you tr it's almost like you can't go there. It's a conversation you absolutely can't have, really, in terms of looking at any kind of, any kind of structure where there was some kind of payback from the... I mean, I know, in a sense, you look at sales and so forth as well. But in well, from, and that's from another way we could fund it. We could actually tax the art market. We could regulate it and tax it, you know. I mean, it's the last unregulated mm. market, you know. There is Davos, a reason why there's an art fair were, in Miami. Yeah. <laughs> in Davos, they were talking about yeah. it being, the, being basically a giant money laundering scheme, money international money laundering scheme. Yeah. And that's very, that fits very weird, very strangely, with the values of most artists. I mean, it's a very odd combination. I mean, I'm, obviously some artists might be into money laundering, I don't know, but my guess is not that many. And I think there's something that feels very strange about this weird thing that sits on top of people working, making work, I went, doing this stuff. I went to a talk um, a couple of weeks ago where Eric Fischel, it was a talk about fakes and forgeries in the art market, and Eric Fischel, American painter, um, told a story about how he'd been to, uh, invited to give a talk at a Swiss auction house. And when he was there, the auctioneer was really excited and said, Eric, you know, it's so great to have you here. And, you know, we've got one of your works, one of your drawings on sale, you know, in our London auction house. And Eric went, oh, that's really interesting. And he showed him a picture of it. And Eric said, that's not my work. <laughs> and... Um, it's, it was a drawing, very like one of his paintings. He said, well, it couldn't ever be one of my works because, you know, I just don't do drawings after my paintings. They're drawings which inform and lead up to the painting. They're not. And then the auctioneer turned around and said, how can we be sure that this really isn't <laughs> your work? Because, you know, you might have had a girlfriend and split up with her or, you know, and then decided to disown the girlfriend and disown the work. And maybe this, we can't really trust that you're telling us this is your work or not. So I think that, 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 that <laughs> I mean, the fact that my illustration here is how, you know, even an artist of <coughs> that stature and, you know, success is sort of disempowered at that moment and, um, you know, and, and whose integrity is, is, you know, disavowed in a way. The art market's very interesting. It operates completely the opposite to the general economy. And the only two bits of the economy that do that 
of a luxury goods industry, you know, the Aspreys and Garrods and the art market. Everything else tends to track the general economy. So when the economy goes down, the art market goes up. So it's actually a very, very strange. There's a great, there was a great piece in the art newspaper. I don't know when we read the art newspaper. It's kind of, but anyway, there was a great, great piece. There was a great piece in there about it, and it's just it does not behave like anything else, and that shows that there's something funny about it, basically. <laughs> very did, strange did, about it. I did have a conversation with, a, I think he was a sociology professor a few months ago, who was saying that, and he writes about the luxury goods mm. market. Yeah. And he's now increasingly writing about the art market because it's, it's, it's the same it yeah. acts in such a similar way. Yeah. But yeah. I don't, I don't want to talk too much about the art market. And no. I wanted to go back <laughs> to what I want to. Should we open it up and see whether people? I'm, I'm going to open it up. Yeah, I'm going to open it up after I've after I've asked one okay. last question here um, uh, about you mentioned crowdsourcing this kind of as a as a way of making decisions and yeah. Um, and you were saying about if, what if there was this bit of the art world that was over here and we just did it as a test. Isn't that what crowdfunding is? Or at least a bit of what crowdfunding is, or approaching it. That uh, people decide what they want to fund and they put their own money into it. I mean, it's a bit different because it's not public funding, but it, it, or it's poor. On the other hand, it's pure public funding because it's funding actually coming from the mm. public. But, but it's, it's a way of funding. Someone comes up with an idea and someone says, yes, I'll give you, I'll put some money towards that. Yeah. I mean, it is in a way, but I think my problem with it once again is that it's, again, atomised, isn't it? It's about the individual project. Mm -hmm. It's about the individual payment. So what, what gets stripped away in that is the conversation mm -hmm. about... I mean, it is in there, but <coughs> it's... There, it is a statement of, of cultural, shared cultural value to, in a certain yes, yeah. way. But in others, I think it, it strips out that negotiation, you know. Yeah, I share, I think for crowdfunding, I share an office with um, Hen Norton, who set up We Did This, which is now part of another platform, I can't remember. But, she, but she's interesting, she's saying that crowdfunding is actually not about the money. The money's great, and getting the money is really, really good. It actually creates a completely different relationship with people who like your stuff. Actually, now some people want to get involved in that, some people don't. And that's what you don't get when everything's done by proxy for you, by the Arts Council or somewhere else. You actually are able to. And, you know, the, the kind of sums now are going up and up and up. I mean, it is still project-based, un undoubtedly. But there are people getting quite a lot of money out of crowdfunding now. And what it does is it gives you a fan base, actually, put it really. And we don't have many fans in the arts. We have audiences and we have professional <coughs> relationships. We don't have people who will get excited about what we do on our behalf which is absolutely key, I think, to rebuilding kind of the base, really. Mm -hmm. So that's the interesting thing about it. And I think if there are other ways of bringing that kind of constituency in, which is not just about crowdfunding, then that seems to me there's a clue in there about how you can start to extend. And people will get involved with something, either, but sometimes we say like the artist, most of the time we say like the idea, actually. It's not about recognising a famous artist saying, I just like the idea of this, this thing, it sounds really interesting. I'm going to put 50 quid in or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's not a replacement for public funding, but you're right, it is a form of public funding. But it's, but it's, no, it's not a replacement, but maybe there's something in there. Because I do, what I am quite sincere about this being a solutions-focused thing, and we'll, this is kind of like some primary research to go away <laughs> and think about some other ways that it might actually work, and maybe at some stage we would say to the Arts Council, how about this as an idea? Um, but it might, there might be mechanisms within <laughs> it with the technology well, and another, another model perhaps useful. and again I go back to this idea of a contract which I think is really important there's something about negotiating the terms of engagement which I think are 
really important if you're going to get beyond a transaction. And that's what I'm uncomfortable about, even with crowdfunding. Even though I take what you say about the fans and, <coughs> and the engagement with the idea, it's still a transaction. I'm still buying into an idea, and I transact, and it's kind of... It, it lacks something about um, what's a more involved process of negotiation. And, I mean, Barbara Steveni, who's in the New Economy of Art, I mean, she was involved with John Latham in the 70s in those negotiations of putting artists in different industrial contexts. And, you know, when you talk to them, what comes across really strongly is that most of the artwork was in the process of the negotiation of the contract. And it, it chimes with what you were saying earlier about Greece and the, mm. you know, embedding yourself in society because part of that process and negotiation of the contract was getting a group of people who are not natural art lovers, if you like, to understand what an artist does, how an artist works, how an artist is valuable, you know, how an artist could function within a space which isn't an art gallery yeah. or an art school or a you know, an, an ordinary way you would expect to find an artist, in other and, words. And most of the APG artists actually just did their work. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't like they were in there to do an outreach project. They just yeah. were in a police station doing their normal stuff, actually. It was great. Actually. I loved it. So, does anyone have anything they want to add? Questions, comments? We, we're, I'm sure we're quite happy to keep going, but I'm sure someone's got yeah. something they might want to say. Yes. If you, also, if you could say, if you want to, if you could say a little bit about where you're from. I think I know where you're from, but if you, if, if, if you don't mind, if you don't want to, then that's also fine. Um, my I don't know, but I mean, I think what you're sort of raising is the idea of arm's length. And, and I think one of the really troubling things for me, and something that has changed, is how far we've moved from the John Maynard Keynes originating idea that the Arts Council should be about artists, you know, and, and making things or productions or events. And... I think, in a way, what has become compromised in the last few years has been that arm's length. And I think that I think the desire that we're expressing here to disintermediate is really to try and get, once again, that distance mm. in order to ensure that um, it's possible to do things in a slightly different way and mm. open up the possibilities of what can be done. But in terms of where the, how the money would be transferred, I mean, you know, we've been hearing about Kids Company where £40 million was handed over to one organisation for, you know, on the basis of a proposal for what they were going to do. So there's press, lots of precedent for that. 
You know, I'm not saying... The always gets into every discussion. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that it can't, shouldn't be evaluated. I'm not saying you just give the money where nobody checks mm. on it or nobody checks see that it's spent properly or that people don't say this is how we're going to do it. You know, there's room for robust processes and negotiations. It's just that when you put... It's a bit like, you know, we, give, we distribute money for, for, for royalties, for licensing from photocopying and scanning of books. And if you're a photographer with a big uh, photographic agency, then the money goes from, say, a university, the copyright licensing agency, who take mm. 11%. Then it comes to us, and we take 18%. Then it goes to Getty, maybe, who will take something between 50 and 80%. And what's left for the photographer is hardly anything at all of that 100%. And I think in the same way you're saying follow the money, mm. I think it would be interesting to look at all those intermediaries and what money goes out, mm. you know, before you get to the exhibition, the artist, the performance. And I think that's, that's the issue, is that there's been... There's an awful lot mm. of spend... And when there isn't very many pounds, how, how can we ensure that more of those that pound goes to, you know, the actual thing that we say this is all about. Um. I, I, I kind of wouldn't, I probably wouldn't get rid of the Arts Council, actually. I mean, I, I, I think, I just think there are, I, I wanted to behave differently, really, think of other ways of doing things. We were lucky enough to do a book last year with the Wellcome Trust, and we were interviewing medical humanities, we were interviewing lots of doctors and scientists and people, and talking to this, this group of people who were working in a really strange corner of human fertility, really experimental area of it. And they just all sat down at the beginning of the year, all the people involved with it, right through, cut through the whole system, and actually worked out how they were going to spend the money. And when I did, he said, how do you do things in the arts? And I described it, he said, that sounds really weird. What on earth did you do that for? It sounds completely bonkers. I mean, isn't, I mean yeah, nobody's, we were always in a situation when nobody has enough money. I mean, that goes without saying. It goes without saying in the health service, or it goes... And, but, you know, basically, we think it's much better if we sit down and work it out between us rather than let, um, you know, the minister decide, Jeremy Hunt decide what, how the money can be spent. So that's what we do. And I just think that it's probably trying things. Because it's not only organisational business models are broken. I think the funding business model is kind of broken as well. And I'm not convinced that what's coming down the tracks in terms of there being effectively no local authority money at all in probably five or six years' time and really big cuts... It's just not going to work, actually. It's just going to be chaos, I think, if it carries on as, as it is at the moment. There just needs to be, you know, we need to get everyone's brains going right through and not just have four or five people sitting in um, Bloomsbury thinking about it, really. It needs to, really needs to be thought through on a collective basis, I think. Okay, uh, just at the front, yeah. <coughs> uh, yes, and, and thank you. My name is Susan Alford. I'm the founder of two organisations, Be Smart about art and also the Association of Women Art Leaders. Uh, to give you some context, I was actually raised by an economist. And I feel like I approach the art world from that mm. particular perspective where I've never studied it, but I know that's how I view the marketplace, pricing, etc. And um, I was interested, before I asked my question, John, with what you said about how you don't think the art world actually reflects the rest of the economy. My take on that is it really depends on what part mm -hmm. of the art market you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Any small gallery artist um, barely struggling to survive would be lying through their teeth if they said the last recession had an effect on them severely. 
and I said that someone had to go to gallery at the time. So my question for you is, what is our own responsibility in the sector? What's, what's the solution? I'm interested in your intake on that as well. In terms of artist responsibility? No, our responsibilities in this room, yeah. organisations, yeah. as, as, as potentially officer, but, but yes, as artists. In fact, yeah. good question, because what can the artists say when they're asked to do things for free. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, just before you respond, I think I would imagine most of the people in this room probably are artists. Yes, um, and, uh, but yeah, go on. I think we just have to be really straightforward about this as well. I mean, I, I had a, I'm going to be a bit controversial, I thought the Paying Artists campaign was a bit, was a great idea, but was pointed in the wrong place, basically. It was going to government, talking to government and the Arts Council, whereas the people who weren't paying them were probably in the room with them every day. <laughs> and, and I think, I think actually, yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, we, we need to look at what we do to ourselves <laughs> in, in the arts, never mind. And I couldn't understand why having a meeting with Sab Sabah Javid was a good idea. What's he got to do with it, actually, when the person who hasn't decided not to pay for an exhibition is, you know, upstairs or something or other? And I think, I, so I think, I think, yeah, we've got to clean our acts up, actually. And I think, but that gets back a little bit to the, the thing I mentioned earlier on about, you know, most arts organisations, well, most arts organisations being not-for-profit charities with boards. And basically, you know, when you start looking at how you're going to spend the money, boards will prioritise the, the staff, if you like, who tend, tend not to be artists, and everything else gets squeezed in the whole thing. So I think there's probably a role for the Arts Council, actually, to start really looking at the percentage of what organisations are spending goes directly to artists, and whether they're being paid or not. As well. I, I, mean, I think I that's been to happen. Yeah. To I think where you put your finger on is something which is, is a <coughs> systemic issue, actually, and I think it goes back to the not so much the paternalism, but the mm. patronage model of the art world. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've been struck throughout my time in the art world by the presumption that you can do things, yeah. you know, without being paid or having very little, or there's somebody to look after your kids, or, you know, that you don't have to pay for. So there is a, a presumption of being of independent means. Um, that, is that is how we're still, I think, if people are honest, in this 19th century model of, of the art world. And, you know, there was, you know, it's only really quite recently that I've seen women running organisations who have children. But, you know, this is something really relatively new in the art world. And I think that is, I know that's going to be the topic of a later Yeah, I was going to say, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to back you over. But I'll go back to uh, your specific. Ne next week we're doing a, a session around artist income with AN, who ran the Paying Artists mm -hmm. Campaign, and Artist Union England. And then two weeks, I think, after that, we're doing one around families, artists for families, and how they cope with that. So that, I just want to try and keep the focus a bit okay, more on public I'll, funding. I'll come back to your point. Yeah. Well, one of the things we do is we we make a point of charging people when artist work is used. And we're constantly coming up with people saying, oh, but, you know, we're doing... An, this is helping artists promote their work, you know, so... And if they can't get around us, they will go directly to the artist and say, but this will be really good for you, this is really good for your career. And, and one artist put it really well. He, looked, he said, well, how come when a plumber comes round, you know, you don't say... Um, you know, just do it for me, will you? Just fix the, the toilet, it's not it's leaking. You know, the presumption is within all processes, you know, when you're making a book that somebody will be paid to design it, the printer will be paid, hopefully, 
for the publication and so on. But very often, the, there is a, there are, you know, if it's an artist and sometimes the curator the, or the writer, that doesn't, you know, people assume that you're somehow, the kudos of doing mm. this is, is sufficient. Mm. So I think it's a really, really serious issue because it also excludes lots and lots and lots of people mm. from participating. And part of it, I mean, it seems to be attached to value. And if somebody is paid, then they're actually going to take it yeah. I, I, I'm sorry, I just want to move on from the. It, maybe it's something we can pick up on afterwards when, when we finish the formal part of the conversation, but it, it's, it's going to be the focus for a future talk. So we'll, we'll invite you back for that one and you can <laughs> join in on that one. So, at the back. Hi, I'm Naomi, I'm a citizen and I'm a founding director of an artist labour organisation. I've been subsidising the Arts Council for good. Well, nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, and just question of scale though, I mean Amanda, Amanda and I both worked for London Arts for a, a while and it was great fun actually but, 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 but one of the things you know, when we were there I worked, I worked this out a while ago, between London Arts and the Arts Council there were about nine people looking after the, the visual arts in London um, ten years, well no less than that, five years ago there were 28 people doing it so, I mean, there has been a massive expansion in some parts of, parts of our world. Now, whether, I don't think, you know, things got 28 times more or four times more complicated than they were then. And I think you can see that all over the place, huge expansion. I mean, it's not, it's not there now, it's much less than that now. But, you know, when, there was the, mon when the money was there, the money was not going to artists. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm saying. That's basically, it was it was going to actually beef up other parts of the system. I think and I think I we're think being a bit provocative, aren't we, by saying remove all intermediaries. I, I mean, I think, you know, the example of the Tate, the, the job, is important because if you look at the Whitechapel, there are now more curate, more people who have in the fundraising department than in the curatorial mm. department. And so mm. it comes back to this question of the cost-benefit. You know, what is it you're there to do? Are you... When do you stop being an, an arts organisation and become simply a fundraising mm. organisation? And is that the rest use of public money to be paying people to go and raise money from private individuals who then get privileged access to those public assets? Is that, does that really make sense? Is that really where we want to go? I totally agree with you. But also, the point you made about, you know, the system churning out arts management, I mean, it's, 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 un it's unbelievable the shift that's mm. happened there. Totally. There are more curators than artists. Uh, totally, absolutely. And yeah. what's that about? 
Well, also, there, there, there's, there's people called producers now, and they, I don't remember them being around at all 20 years ago. Yeah. Cultural entrepreneurs. Cultural yeah. Any other... Amanda, yeah. Something that has uh, you know, been alluded to by um, all the speakers, because um, we're here to talk, yeah, we're obviously, you, you get people in a room, mm. and we always talk about the arts funding system, mm. but what, in a way, it's perhaps the third way that, that John's talking about, which is this idea of the, the sector, arts organisations, arts organisations and artists working together and being much more interesting being, because I work part-time at ArcWest and a lot of people in the arts work part-time um, and are also artists and it's interesting being an artist and working in an organisation and seeing a, at least a little bit, I mean I've worked in organisations for a long time so I would not say that I'm not also institutionalised but at least I, I feel like I've maybe got my head outside the door a little bit and being able to see that and see the, talk to artists and find out the way they do things, talk to organisations and find out the way that they do things. It's so vastly different and absolutely doesn't make any sense a lot of the time, the way the organisations operate. And, um, yeah, there is... I think we are institutionalised. We are institutionalised into thinking that it must be this competitive bidding system which comes with a huge cost attached to it to administer. Um, and finding a way to cut through that would be... was part of the motivation for this series of, of events as well. There's a great story about the mining industry which is where there's this guy who worked for Rio Tinto Zinc. 
And he had, they had a real problem with one of the mines they were drilling. They couldn't find any way of accessing this particular kind of chunk of gold or coal or whatever it was. And he, and he was talking to his son, he was talking to his son, and his son was telling him all about, you know, kind of what happens on the web, basically, because he had no idea at all. So what he did was he, he copied all the plans of this particular mine and stuck them up on the internet and said, help me, I don't know what we're doing here. I mean, knowing that he'd probably get the sack in the morning. Went to bed, woke up in the morning, and there were thousands of people contacted him saying, why don't you try and do this, and so forth. And basically what happens now is in the mining industry, people at certain levels, people completely open source all their data and let other people together find problems. Which is, and you think of the mining industry and the whole cultural history of them. If they can do it, we can do it, actually. I really think so. I'll take your mining story and I'll, I'll up to you. You'll beat my Rod Stewart story. No, 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 <laughs> but um, I was really interested about, you know, in the early days of aviation, that, you know, obviously a very high proportion of planes, you know, crashed. And so the air, aviation industry has one of the highest... Um, and most widespread adoption of people actually saying when things are wrong. Mm. So it's, it's, it's rewarded and it's part of the culture that if there's anything that's not quite right or isn't working right, that you will say it, record it, let people know, because that's how you keep safe. And I just think that's quite an interesting thing. If we all just sort of... And that's, that's, that's the opposite of institutionalisation. Yeah, yeah. It's it's every, here comes everyone. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's a kind of collective responsibility rather than collective action, but responsibility about, you know, mm. improving, seeing if something's wrong, addressing it, not leaving it to somebody else, but doing it, you know, taking your responsibility. And the difference between that and the kind of instrumental thing you were worried about earlier on is that it, it doesn't mean people do different stuff. It's just they put their, you know, they think about their stuff in mm. a different kind of way, and it's not something they just generate themselves in their little world. It has some value. Yeah. Outside as well. Yeah. So I'm good. I think we've got time for one more question, comment, addition. Yes, back. I was just thinking about um, the, the way that the funding system works in this country that's different to not non-Anglo-Saxon countries mm. that also have government funding. Um, one of the strengths, but also the issues, is that there's a huge transparency. The arts council tries really hard, but also other funding institutions try to be very fair. Um, Grounds for the Arts is an example of that. Um, when you compare, to, for example, in France, where public funding is a lot more about who you know and building relationships over time, where here, in theory, through Grounds for the Arts, anyone can access it. And they make a good case for it. Um, and and I, I've noticed around that actually that, that on one hand that's really positive, um, giving a lot of, of emerging artists access to small pots of money to kick off the ground. Um, but then the, there's it, then it throws them into the system, and they get caught in the system, and they, then it feels like the, the way to go is to then yeah. you know get enough project funding to then go to NPO to then yeah and then caught mm -hmm. in that wheel um, and. I don't, I don't know how, how, how can people resist that, um, and I know that a few are trying, but it's, it's almost like a vicious... It's a, it's a good question. I, I ran with, with a couple of friends for about three or four years. We ran a, an arts event monthly thing at uh, Bethel Green Working Men's Club, and we started by funding it on basically the ticket price at the door. It was a fiver at the door. 
And then the second year, we did it, um, we got a five, this was back when a small grant from Arts Council was 5,000, so we got a 5,000 pound grant the second year. And then the third year, we got, I think, 10,000 pound grant. And then the fourth year, they said, we really like you, and we'd really like you to apply to become an RFO, as it was at the time. And we thought about it and decided that it was the last thing we wanted to do. And, uh, and, just, and actually just stopped doing the, pro the project because the, the other thing about that system, as it was then, is that if you go back, it's project funding, so it has to be different each time. And if you go back, it has to be developed, it has to be different. You can't just do the same thing over and over again. Um, so we were really, uh, but the thing is, it was full every time we did it. We did it once a month. It was getting good press. People really enjoyed it. But we had to keep changing it in order to get the funding to be able to pay the people that we wanted to come along and be able to guarantee the fees for the artists that we wanted to, to pay. And um, the only way we could do that is by being forced increasingly into this into the system that, that we wanted to resist because it was just, it would take up more time than it would that it was worth, really. Quite, I mean, I've just, I'm working with a couple of very young artists, I mean, people like in their early 20s, who, and, and they, there's an interesting thing that started, and actually, they're mostly people working in performing arts rather than, 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 than visual arts, and they seem to have a quite, a, almost not a promiscuous approach to funding, and actually really looking at cross, very kind of quite sophisticated models across subsidy, licensing bits and pieces of content here and there, doing bits of crowdfunding, getting bits of public funding. And I think there's a kind of, I mean, in a way, they've got no choice because there's, there's not much else happening. So I think there's kind of, you know, it's possible to, to do, to get on the funding ladder without having to climb to the top of it, actually. And, and they have no, absolutely no expectations of ever becoming an MPO. They wouldn't be interested in that. They see themselves developing somewhere else. You know, and actually the re-emergence of things like collectives as well, people actually working as collectives again, it's really interesting as well. And I think that's coming from the same, the same kind of impetus, knowing that there's actually probably in the future there's not going to be any great benefit to be charity forward, MPO thing. I actually, mean, I'd love to see there to be a kind of slush fund, uh, you know, slush funds <coughs> available, you know, where you sort of say, here's a hundred thousand pounds, we're going to put aside two hundred thousand pounds. We're not going to give you more than, you know, £3,000 a shot, but actually we don't very want very much for it. Well, just send us a paragraph of what you're going to do. Send us a paragraph at the end of what you've well, we done. Kind of did, we kind of did that a bit, didn't we? We were just talking earlier. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. We, um, we just, just gave said, money. do it. <laughs> And this thing of yeah. uh, developing, developing and establishing and building and mm. For the arts, I mean, why don't we just stick them in a big hat and pull them out? You know, <laughs> I mean, would it really result in less success? You know, really? I mean, it would be good to experiment. Closing pharma, you know, like, you know, one is a placebo and one isn't. What you'd have one set of product grants for the arts, which are all, you know, scrutinised. You know, put through all the things. Arts organisation would be a placebo arts organisation, and then yeah, you'd I mean, have another one, and it wouldn't be. Like a assessed or anything and you just give them money. I think, it, I, th I think also, I mean, you know, to, um, in defence of funders, it's, it's difficult to be radical for a funder. It really is hard, actually. 
you get a real, you get really beaten up, actually. Well, everyone is, in, everyone is, is invested in their own bit of the system, yeah. Um, which has ha which started so long ago that no one can really understand. Remember I mean, the arts council, yeah. the, the purpose of the arts council originally, way before the January white mm. paper and all the rest, was about rebuilding buildings that had been bombed after That's the right. war. But it would be nice if everyone kind of got into a risk contract. So the Arts Council could put a certain percentage, not all of it, it's risk mitigation, mm. you know. You, ha oh, you do your placebo and your rigorous assessments. You're not kind of throwing everything up in the air. Every arts organisation has one slot a year which is completely open and is just pulled out of a hat, you know. Mm. An artist, you could also, you know, decide on a commission. You could invite, you know, people to bid you know, bid, we're not going to bidding, but you know, to <laughs> propose do that, that you make an artwork for them, <coughs> you know, and they don't quite know what they're going to get, but just, it would, it would be so much more fun, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think we should end this bit on fun. It's a good point. Uh, and develop placebo public funding, it sounds, it sounds amazing. Um, <laughs> I want to thank the speakers. I want to thank Jolene and John for um, their fantastic contributions. All of you very much for sitting and listening and contributing as well. Please don't run away. The bar is still open and you can, we, can, we can all mingle and uh, continue this discussion as well. Um, I also want to thank Blocks 36 as well. Thank you for hosting this one and all the future ones. Two talks I want to mention. Next week is the second part of the System Failure Talks on regeneration, called the city problem, which will be here. And the other one I want to talk about is, you might have seen these uh, flyers up at the table where the DJ is, uh, for the Radical Renewable Art and Activism Fund, which is a project by an artist, Ellie Harrison, where she ultimately, I think, wants to uh, buy a wind turbine to produce electricity which will provide fun money to give to artists for no-strings funding for more activist and political arts projects. And this is great. I mean, this is what we're talking about. And it's a this Kickstarter. She, she's doing a Kickstarter at the moment. It's open for another few weeks to do the first bit of research. And she, it's being launched at a talk on Saturday the 14th of November. There's flyers up there, so you don't have to write all that down. And I'm going to be talking at the talk as well. Probably about what we've just been talking about, so it might get a bit meta. Um, but do come along to that as well if you'd like. And uh, yeah, that's all. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.